As part of their enduring commitment to justice, equity, and expression, the Open Society Foundations are proud to sponsor Many Lumens. You're listening to Many Lumens, where we talk about and find meaning in the intersections of art, social change, and popular culture. I'm your host, Maori Carmel Holmes. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak with the talented actor and artist, Danielle Deadweiler. Danielle was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. A natural-born performer and creative, she was deeply influenced by Black Southern creativity, expression, and culture. After completing two graduate degrees, she pursued acting full-time. Danielle has appeared in countless independent films and theatrical productions, including being in a regional production of For Colored Girls, directed by Jasmine Guy, Station Eleven on HBO Max, and From Scratch, which streams on Netflix. In 2023, she starred as Mamie Till Mobley in the award-winning film Till, directed by Chinonye Chukwu, a performance which garnered her several nominations for Best Actress. I was excited to speak with Danielle, not only due to her powerhouse performances, but because of her immense love and care for the character she portrays. Danielle joined our conversation from her home when I asked her about her early childhood growing up in Southwest Atlanta. And now for my conversation with Danielle Deadweiler. Thank you for joining us, Danielle. Welcome to Many Lumens. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. I want to ask you, how would you describe your family life growing up? I know that you were raised in Southwest Atlanta, and I'm just sort of curious, you know, what did your family, you know, do? What kind of lessons did they instill in you? My mother worked in legal administration for over 25 years, and my father worked at CSX, the railroad company, for 30 years. But my mother's parents were laborers. They were Mm. workers. They worked in a chicken factory for years, you know, like 30 plus years as well. Mm -hmm. So thinking about a history of hard work, you know, consistent, diligent, rigorous labor for family, which means labor for the community and being giving and loving in that way Mm -hmm. and understanding that art is a part of life. Not having that as language, it is intrinsically woven in your daily. So my grandma sewed clothes, you know, a lot of black families, like you, you have no choice, but like that's where she put her her creative spark into into life. My grandfather and grandmother had a garden on their land. That's a creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. I see creativity in in how to how to live in the survivability that we have on a day to day. But my mom had a best friend, Velma Ludaway, who was a visual artist. She's a painter, and she's the first professional artist that I saw in in an intimate manner, because we would be at her house. My my brother and her brother were really tight friends. She had a studio, painting studio in the basement of her house. She would always exhibit at uh, the National Black Arts Festival. And that's where I saw art being practiced on a certain scale. And my mother was intent on making sure her children had access to art in a certain kind of way. Why was that? I think she wanted to do it. And I think her parents didn't necessarily know how to support that for her and mm-hmm. her desire. 
and her moved from Athens, Georgia, which is where my parents are from and where my grandparents lived. She came to Atlanta and knew that that was what she wanted for her children. She mm-hmm. wanted for them to have a creative expression. Mm. Yeah. And so when did you think about becoming an artist yourself or did you not think but, about it? Was it just like you were in it and you were doing it and you didn't even consider it? See, and that's, that's the point. Cause it's just always been there. Mm-hmm. I think, I think I danced, we started dancing with Marlene rounds at four, like four or five mm-hmm. and dance has always just been there. And so theater has always just been there because it was a natural smooth segue into each and every other discipline. And then when I realized like, cause I like, get even in college, I didn't major in theater or, or art in any, in any way I, I did plays less so, but I still did them in college and in, um, and in grad school. And then after grad, I taught for two years and I was like, Oh, something's missing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't like this void. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's when I realized, okay, um, I need to, I, sh- I should be doing this. And so I auditioned for, for Color Girls, which was Jasmine Guy's directorial debut here for theater. And that's when the ball just rolled. It was like, I can't not do this on a, a consistent basis. It has to be a part of my daily life. I would love to back up just a little bit. You know, you've talked about starting with dance, but when did you know that you wanted to take up acting? And, you know, were you in any... Uh, was it a church play or community theater? Like, how were you introduced to acting? See, because that's why I located in in total dance theater because mm-hmm. that it didn't feel like dance. It just felt like it felt like an amalgamation of all of of all of the the, the mediums together. Mm-hmm. This is a scene. It happens to have movement in it. Oh, and it happens to have Capitola Williams spitting this Nikki Giovanni play, and it <laughs> happens to have you know, all this other dynamic stuff moving at the same time. And so I never felt like I wasn't an actor, even though like a lot of people would be like, I thought you were just a dancer, but like at certain times, no, no, no. I mean, dancers aren't just dancers, right? Like there's a communication that's happening. (laughs) There's a language that's, that's flowing. It might not have words. It's asymic, you know, it's something else. And so I've, I've always felt like an actor. Mm -hmm. It just, it just, it just started to 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 come out differently with language. Uh, oh, Atlanta Street Theater. Okay. That's what that's when it really. Oh, you're this is this is acting. This is you're doing traditional theater games and you're doing uh, scene composition in a certain kind of way. You're using the tongue to and the tongue and the body to express in a specific manner. Mm-hmm. And so Atlanta Street Theater is when. I really had a bit more rigor in in learning the the, the principles of theater. Uh, you m- made a decision to major in history as an undergraduate, which I did as well. And no, I, I'm curious. What were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. I know I did, but I'm curious why you uh, chose that major. <laughs> I had it in my mind I was going to go and get a doctorate and be a collegiate professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My sister was a history sociology major. I wasn't digging too tough on the sociology portion of her degree, but I thought history made sense for me because I, I don't know, I was just always attracted to bridging the gap and having had this childhood that was reared in, in all of these civil rights organizations. So 
these were places where things were happening and history was being spoken of, but it was just like, you know, sometimes in one and out the other of a kid, but it's stuck <laughs> and it's, I need to stay stuck mm-hmm. to it. And I need to um, analyze it with a new lens. And so that's, that's why, that's why history, but also not thinking at the time that art was going to enable me to live a certain way quite yet taking it for granted, maybe. I didn't think that art was the job that I could employ quite yet. I thought that, oh, you go get your doctor. This is, this is security. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, oh, get you a good government job, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> but then I was also like applying for grants and stuff at the time and thinking, oh, I could, you know, I, sh- I should synthesize this this academic pursuit with art. Mm-hmm. So bridging the educational and the artistic together is a good thing I could do. Not knowing that, you know, you can do that in all kinds of ways. Yeah. It doesn't have to just be through an academic institution. Yeah. yeah. What made you um, decide to uh, apply and attend Spelman? Ah, here's what happened. <laughs> I was going to Morehouse every year. Um, from eighth grade to 12th grade, a part of this program called the Morehouse Pipeline Program. It was centered around science and math. Okay. That's not my shtick, but <laughs> it was wonderful to do as a thing continuously every summer. And we happen to have gotten paid. We got these lovely stipends. You get to hang out with friends every summer. Cool. Mm-hmm. I went to visit some schools in the North in New York. Cause, oh, my sister went to Columbia. I want to go to the North too. Mm-hmm. And then I said, ooh, I don't know if I don't want to be around us the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, I think I want a more concentrated cultural experience. Mm-hmm. Additionally, let's make a good financial choice for mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to stay home. And so Morehouse Pipeline Program created an opportunity for me to have a scholarship to go to Spelman. And it was the best thing I could have ever done. It was the best choice. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's amazing. Um, I know that you went on to earn an MA in American Studies at Columbia. So you did follow your sister (laughs) Um, and you got to study with the brilliant Robin D.G. Kelly. And I was just curious, what did you think would be next after the master's program? Were you still on the Ph.D. track or what were you thinking when you entered? I did. I was I was I was thinking I was going to go get a doctorate. I applied to Emory Mm -hmm. to the women's studies. It, I think I applied to the ILA program, which is now de- defunct. Oh, yeah. I remember and the that program. Department. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it I seemed like such program. a dream. <laughs> it was, it seemed like such a dream. It did. And I, I was a finalist mm-hmm. and I was working for the, I had a governor's internship. And so I was a finalist and I went and did the little two days that they have where people come and you talk to different professors and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, that was, that was my only go-to, right? I, I was one of those, it's, it's this one or nothing. And, and it became a nothing because they didn't accept me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was in the bathroom at the, at the internship crying in the bathroom, like, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was the beginning of, leading me in a direction to do what I do today. Like yeah. that led me from that internship. I, a woman who worked there told me about the school, the elementary school that I ended up working at. And that was a beautiful experience because children are phenomenal. But I realized 
I needed something a little bit more dynamic and was try and was finding the need to infuse art in everything that I do because we had dual teacher classrooms mm-hmm. and and just wanted something more energetic. Um, and that's that that's what led me to that audition. Yeah. yeah. So I was curious, yeah. um, you know, you yeah, you mentioned that you auditioned for Jasmine Guy's uh, directorial debut for Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, which mm-hmm. is, you know, this iconic play. And mm-hmm. I was wondering... Iconic. <laughs> yeah. What was that production like? And what did you learn from working with Jasmine Guy? Mm, that's my OG. I learned from her to this day. I wouldn't have been able to move through any of the what the experience of the last year has been the last three, four, five years, quite frankly, of, of becoming a part of certain productions and being thrusted into a greater purview of, of the national artistic scope without her. I had done for Color Girls a couple of times before, mm-hmm. but to come to this experience w- was different, like, I think I played Lady in Red before and maybe some blends of some colors from high school because I did Lady in Red in high school. And our, our uh, director, uh, Miss Milton, she had chopped it up because, you know, you can't give them the whole thing <laughs> in high school. And then uh, Spellman, we had mixed it up because so many people want to be a part of the thing. So you only get so much. Mm-hmm. And then here was an experience with Jasmine where, you know, it was the amount of women who were in the play on the stage. But to have everybody being a certain kind of track or a certain experience, you are lady in green, you are lady in yellow, I was lady in yellow. I was able to really clearly see, you know, the story of each woman mm-hmm. and really identify with yellow because I felt I felt so fresh and so young and was excited in a certain way. I came in I completely off book and... <laughs> just ready and energized for this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Jazz to this day teaches me how to be a professional, mm-hmm. how to be a woman, how to be a woman of rigor and discipline and, and grace and, and, and integrity. You know, it's truly old school, old school knowledge, but she is the person who has enabled me to, to feel comfortable moving through these spaces and to take charge of myself and letting me know I belong wherever I am. I think there's something about our generation and we're like this bridge. Uh, I'm born in 78. I know you're born in 82, but they're someone, they Ooh. call it, um, it's like ex you know, between Gen X, between millennials. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the common things is the amount of student loan debt that we carry. But I think that's Good also <laughs> related to um, a pursuit of degrees, right? Like, I don't know a yeah. more like heavily yeah. degreed group of people as a generation. Um, particularly black women. Yeah, particularly black women. Yes. And <laughs> this like, you know, I have friends who have two MFAs and people who have a JD and a PhD. Right. And, you know what I mean? It's like, right. it's really crazy. But I mean, I also think it was uh, also um, an amazing opportunity to pursue those degrees, right? But mm-hmm. I was curious because I have a master's and a half. I pursued a second one and didn't finish it. But mm-hmm. I know from being in Hollywood circles, like sometimes formal education is really looked down upon, particularly graduate education. 
<laughs> and I was curious what your experience has been like. If the additional schooling helped you navigate your career in certain ways, did it give you confidence that this wasn't the only pursuit for you or, you know, just sort of what what has your experience been like with all your degrees? Yeah, I, we just like student loans. I just think we love pouring the people Sally like, how May. much you got? I got, I got a hundred thousand. How much you got? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, silly me. I, I think we were trying to go by the book. Mm-hmm. I think that we were, we're the last vestiges of folks who were like, okay, cool. This is what you say it, it, it means to, to right. thrive and to be, you know, productive in society. I, yeah. I got that. I got that degree too. Mm-hmm. And my silly butt went off and got an MFA after the master's in American studies too. Mm-hmm. Cause they said, oh, you need to have a certain amount of credit hours in this discipline in order to teach on this level. So I was trying to do it right. But then trying to do it right became deeply frustrating mm-hmm. and unfulfilling. And so it has been helpful in being able to to understand that I am capable of more than just this one thing Mm -hmm. that sometimes I need to float over here if I'm tired over here, Mm -hmm. you know? And also I just need to have two things at the same time. You know, (laughs) that's where it became imperative for me to have a sense of power and control over the art that I was producing. And so that's why I started flowing into performance art and flowing into experimental work and doing things on my own so that I wasn't, but thinking that my life and career was beholden to gatekeepers and people deciding on whether or not I made sense in a project or not. At the end of the day, folks don't really know whether or not I have a degree. Right. <laughs> I mean, they right. just, they really started learning in this last um, in these last several months pushing teal. But I don't think they're interested in having an academic conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> it never comes up. Um I first came to know about you as an artist from uh, your work with Tiana Nakia McLaughlin and Be Alarmed, uh, Mm -hmm. which we... uh, That's my dog. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I met Tiana when she moved to Philly and uh, we had Be Alarmed as a part of the early Black Star. And I know that you all Mm. have collaborated in other capacities, but I was curious, how Mm -hmm. did you two meet? We met at the AU. Okay. Tiana was at Clark. And I was just filming, just like the uh, the Outcast song. <laughs> we had a mutual friend, my dear friend, who I who Nicole, who I seen at um that first day at Spelman, who mm-hmm. made Spelman home. We met through her because they both live in South Carolina mm-hmm. together, and I, it, it you know some things are just divine. And Tiana and I have just been friends since then. You know, my friend Nicole had moved to D.C. and Tiana and I were both living here in Atlanta still. And we still stayed connected and we stayed connected even when Tiana decided to move to Philly, because in Philly, when she moved there in the early outs of her careers, where that's where Be Alarmed was filmed. And we still trucking, doing all kinds of fun stuff. I just think that, you know, there's a spiritual connection to certain people that come in your life. You don't always know why when you first meet them, but. Boy, oh boy, do they reveal themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I I um, realized that Tiana also served as a mentor for you in an exhibition you did with the Q Art Foundation. And you were starting to mm-hmm. talk about, you know, moving into performance art and experimenting uh, with form. And so I was just curious, can you talk about that experience um, or other experiences in the visual art space? Th- that work came from an exhibition I had here called Will to Adorn at Mint. I think there was several years of just playing and figuring it out. 
mm-hmm. moving through different things, knowing that I can't sacrifice my body the same way. And so this is steering back to this understand, you know, this understanding that my family, our lineage, black people's lineage has a a, a, a practice of hard labor. You're not going to not see black people work. That's what we do. But me beginning to understand that I need to do something different with my body or I will or I will degrade it. Um, and it will be completely exhausted. And by the time I'm 50, what will it be capable of doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was because I was doing performance art real hardcore in the streets for a few performances and specifically interrogating what does it mean to labor as a black woman in a domestic capacity in a sexual capacity, a sexual performative capacity. What does it mean to be valued and to be devalued? What does it mean to be in the light, to be in the dark, you know, and for these valuations to be oscillating when you put them side by side and, and there being a blurring. And so I was really digging into that, utilizing my body literally and wanting to go further. And so I moved into portraiture and looking at myself and the ramifications of these years mm-hmm. and looking at my peers in an intergenerational capacity, my mother, my grandmother, um, my my uh, artistic peers, one being Angela Davis Johnson and a student who actually I taught when she was in fourth and fifth grade. And I created a, a documentary kind of experimental doc exploring these intergenerational experiences of black women laboring. And then combining that with these portraits and other multimedia to explore what it means to be laboring in this capacity. And then combining history and thinking about the washerwomen strike in 1881, which is the year Spelman was developed in Atlanta. But there were other washerwomen strikes throughout the South prior to then. But I concentrated on this Atlanta based one. So everything was fusing at this juncture. I think this was around. 2019 and and uh, several years before then is just combining all of that work and that thinking about what labor is and how it's happened how it happens in our lives and how it happens historically and then looking at myself and what was happening and trying to process the flaw that was occurring <laughs> and that was the impetus for object subject flaw um flaw is the only recourse which was at Q And the way Tiana talked to me about that work, which moved through a kind of African diasporic uh, spiritual understanding of the practice. It was a a film called Chores or Chorus, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. And then all of the portraits and the way she presented them was where it it enabled you to see all of those, those women and the experience of being flawed and then being the one who alchemizes that flaw mm-hmm. into something uh, hopeful, into something beyond um, the marks that are left from having had done whatever the labor was. I was reading your artist statement and know how important the legacy of Black women is to you and to your practice. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if there are some Black women, I mean, you've named some, Jasmine Guy and uh, mm-hmm. Terry and Dawn and Tiana, but are, are there mm-hmm. other Black women that you lean upon as guides or that you'd like to lift, lift up as um, having an impact on your career? Goodness, you're going to ask this and then, you know, two hours later, I'm going to be like, I should have said this and this and this. (laughs) Um, 
it's very much the people who were integral in formative years. Like I, I did like Brenda Davenport at, at SELC. Um, I think of those people who have, who have been stick to it, mm. you know, um, uh, let's see. Donna Bisco is, a. Uh, that's my dog. She, you know, these are black women of a certain generation who have just poured into me con- and are consistent in their field. Mm-hmm. Folks you whose name you may not know, but they laid the foundation. You know, um, I think of her. I think of Crystal Fox, uh, even though Crystal Fox from um, having have not. It's just folks who are down for the work mm-hmm. and the joy of it. Right. They, they know how to balance. I think I'm trying to figure out balance still today. I'm getting better at it, but people who understand balance have been Donna and Crystal, mm-hmm. who, who understand I have a family and I have a, a certain kind of joy and you ain't going to tell me nothing because I'm going to murder you on this stage or this, <laughs> uh, you know, or this scene, whatever it is, wherever it is, I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, love all of them. (laughs) Speaking of family, I know that you have a 13-year-old son, Ezra, and Mm -hmm. I was curious a couple of things. One, I wanted to know if he was an artist. He is. He's learning piano. Mm -hmm. He's been in plays, and he's been in a film with me. He is playing basketball now. He's. I think that that has an artistry to it. (laughs) Um. But where he's going to land officially or more, you know, rigorously, I don't know. I don't know. He he's I think he's in this phase of figuring it out, of trying all the things. I think 13 is a time where, you know, you're you're starting to say, oh, this makes more sense to me. This feels good in my body more so than these other things. Yeah. So I think he's kind of there. You know, if I go according to what I have said earlier, then surely he is an artist. It's just what's what's going to stick more so than the other. I was also curious, a lot of my friends who are parents and artists are some of the most productive people that I know and not the other way around, which is what I feel like is the lore. But my experience has been that they're actually quite productive because they're so focused and intentional about their time. And I was just curious Mm -hmm. for you, even for some of my friends, it helped them like really develop discipline in ways that they hadn't before they had kids. And I was just curious if that was your experience. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. He, he needs a certain amount of time. I need a certain amount of time. The work requires a certain amount of time. If you don't get your act together, <laughs> somebody's going to be pissed mm-hmm. and, and, and none of them want to be pissed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, creating, I think I've gotten better at it in the last few years and the acting portion calls for different things. It's, it, it changes based on the project, but that also makes me more intentional about what projects I seek to be participative in Mm -hmm. it makes me more intentional about how I want to roll out anything that I personally do and I you know want to be intentional about being present for everything that he seeks to make and Mm -hmm. be a part of so it's definitely um concentrated the work and concentrated the way that I you know I you know like I was saying I the exhaustion of the body from earlier stuff just said, you have to, you have to find another way. It's got to be another way. And so I think it's more thinking, more processing, more analyzing of, of anything that I seek to make so that when it does come time to make, it's very concentrated time of output. 
Yeah. So that then I can have more concentrated time of self rehabilitation or, uh, or ease discipline mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's definitely forged discipline in my life. So we talked about acting, making conceptual art, dance, writing. I know that you direct film as well, but is there like a single medium that's truly your favorite? I always come back to the stage. Mm-hmm. I'll say that because at the end of the day, it doesn't need anything. All it needed is you mm. or multiple use, multiple people, multiple bodies mm-hmm. to to create something. And and all of the mediums can exist through that body. Mm-hmm. You may not have a camera, but you can you can you can do something that makes it feel like a camera. You don't have to have um, a choreographer. You can. I mean, it's the body has everything that you need. And the stage is just an empty space. I love a black box. That's that's all that you need. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's something to be created in the dark. You know, people love to say love and light and all those kinds of things. And the light is valuable. But much more production happens in the dark than in the light. That's just a universe thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's half and half, right? Like you don't get one without the other. No, you don't. You yeah. don't. But in, in in doing research for some future work, dark matter is more is more prevalent in the universe than planets or stars or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all dark. Yeah, and all the production happens there. Uh, I want to move into talking more specifically um, about film and television, because that is, you know, where I think a lot of people are going to know you from, um, particularly yeah. as of late. And so I was wondering how long after appearing in the production of For Colored Girls was it before you returned to actively pursuing film and television work? You've done Being Mary Jane and, as you mentioned, The mm-hmm. Haves and The Have Nots and The Watchmen, Station Eleven. You know, when did this sort of phase begin? Oh, that took time. I think 2008 is around the time, 2007, 2008 is around the time of For Color Girls. And that's when TV is starting to rev in Atlanta. And I was doing more indie stuff. And Me and Mary Jane didn't happen until like 2012, which then... Station 11 didn't happen until the top of 2020. So that's all, that's all time we did. And we did Watchmen in 2019 too. So it's, that's about seven years, mm-hmm. <laughs> seven years of lots of indie film work, shorts of, you know, indie features of with a bunch of weird shit at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, which I love, yeah. you know, but seven years of just floating and finding community and and being truly honed in the indie space more so than the commercial space people always want to be on the big budgets but you you get to practice you get to actually practice on an indie film set which is big how have you gone about selecting roles what has been your process for that I'm putting my hands up to the sky and saying the spirit <laughs> <laughs> you know I tr- they are. It is divine and intuitive to a certain degree. I think I've 
been interested in a certain kind of or attracted to a certain kind of woman, certain kind of being. And so they just naturally come to me in this way. Mm. Uh, I think I've been had had to have a more uh, conscious yes, yes, no, no in the last year, because it's not like before when you're like auditioning for everything you gotta it's either you're gonna take this job and make this money or not mm-hmm. <laughs> it's less you've got this p- plethora of stuff available to you you know it didn't it doesn't happen until about now to where people are just like oh i like what you do i've seen what you do here's an offer mm-hmm. for the most of my life i've had to i mean for teal i had to audition yeah multiple auditions you know and plenty of other things where you might go through uh, a self-tape a callback, an Mm in-person, another in-person, you know, it's like when people talk about that, it's literally, that might be over the course of a few weeks or a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just like a role just giving to, given to you. So um, yeah, I've, I've just now gotten to the, to the space of saying, I am interested in this. Yes. I'll, I'll keep conversing with an artist or a director or writer or whatever about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I know, I want to see dynamic characters. I want to see flawed people. I want to see black women or black people, beings in all kinds of spaces. And what kind of interior journey is this person going through? Yeah. Is there a dream role or project that you feel comfortable sharing, like that you just always wanted to play? Not really. I get a, a feeling when I when I see something for the first time that makes sense to me that I definitely ha- am sparked to do. But I don't think that there's nothing's like riding my back about, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. You mm-hmm. know, when I see it, I know it. I yeah. know that's that's how I feel. This past year, you were part of two major projects from scratch and till of Mm. course both showing an incredible range and i just you know i want to say i don't know if you remember but i saw you at the london premiere and i yes i remember (laughs) i was dumbfounded i mean i i you embodied maybe with such grace and so much grounding and that wailing room in the courtroom like i'm gonna live with that for the rest of my life and i really Mm. If it was up to me, you would have won all of the awards. <laughs> and that's not a question. I just really wanted to say that um, because you really you. gave us a gift. You know, I think that was an incredibly, um, you know, such a, a, a it's really difficult to play historical figures, right? Because they're imbued yeah. with so much and they mean yeah. so much to people. And I don't know what you did um, to prepare, but I just really um, appreciate you and you deserve all the flowers. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what made you say yes to this film? Had you seen Chinoye, who's also a tourist? Had you seen her previous I, work? I didn't see it till after. <laughs> okay. Till I say yes. Okay. And I just, I have to trust my director. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's also a, a part of choice making. Because um, I don't look at playbacks. I don't do that. Like, it's all about being invested in what is being created. I'm in the environment. I'm not in the frame. Or my work is in the environment. My director's work is the frame. I just trusted who she was. I trusted all of the conversations that we had. We were very open from the beginning about what it meant to take this on, about what it meant to, you know, and speaking and speaking about Black women's labor and speaking about Black women's trauma. Um, and I had known about this all my life in the same way that I, she had known about this. Yeah. And 
that we didn't know as much as we thought we knew when we started <laughs> to dig and feeling that as as a great privilege and a great need to serve this out in, in this capacity with her particular brilliant lens on how to handle it. She was intent on, from the beginning to not show the violence. She was intent on, you know, that just having that real that that real view that that refined crafted ooh you know for it that it deserved and so that's that's why I stepped into it how did you prepare for the role what kind of research did you do and you know how did you get into not only showing the beauty that was in her life and the love that was in her life but of course you know managing the grief and terror that was required like how did you prepare I called my therapist. I said, I'm about to do some stuff that's difficult. Can you be on call? Mm. <laughs> Chinoya had a lot of research, specifically visual footage and, of course, Mamie's memoir. And then just Robin had, had a lot of knowledge about Southern politics and the Southern environment, the resistance, Black rebellion at the time in the South that had, you know, details about what it meant to be in Mississippi. What were Black resistance movements looking like? Mm -hmm. Who were gun-toting? Who were like Dr. Howard, right? And then poetry. Uh, there's just a plethora of just all kinds of work dedicated to Emmett and, de and, and dedicated to Mamie too. Mm -hmm. And so I just compiled all of those different, those things together to, to come to an understanding of, of who she was and and to prepare myself to move through it in that way. I was coming home to my son every night, you know. You have to balance. It's not throwaway art. It's not just, oh, I'm doing something wild and crazy. No, no, no. This is this is this is rich. Care for it in a balanced capacity. Be able to walk into it feverishly and 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 with love and step away, you know, so that you can recover. Yeah. Um, I was told that you recently wrapped the action thriller film Carry On. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is this new territory for you? Can you give us a sneak peek into uh, the character that you're playing? It is wild, okay? <laughs> I, I mean, The Heart of They Fall is a Western, but it had some action in it. Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to ride horses. I had mm -hmm. to learn how to wield a gun. This is a little different when you get into, you know, the notion of, machinery and stuff that's all i'm gonna delve you into just a little hint but it, it's because i don't want to spoil nothing mm -hmm. but this it was a little different it was a little new yet and still it, it's fun action just has a different vibe to it and it's you know has a technical capacity because you know of care and protection of everybody in the midst of doing some hardcore stunts or you know just bigger budgets at the end of the day like damn it's mm -hmm. a plane right there and i'm next to it <laughs> <laughs> but it's gonna be fun and it's set in um an airport and shenanigans occur <laughs> <laughs> enough said um i also read that you're starring in a new film adaptation of august wilson's the piano lesson another iconic oh. play this one is starring Samuel Jackson and John David Washington, directed by Malcolm Washington. I'm assuming you're playing mm -hmm. Bernice. I'm um, you can assume that. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious, how does it feel to step into such big shoes considering the folks who've been in this play on Broadway and, you know, the previous adaptation? 
How are you, how are you feeling about that? Are you, you know, ready? I never put weight on stuff because the, the, the work doesn't put weight on hmm. the characters don't put weight on what that means externally. They're mm-hmm. very, I'm just invested in the interior world. Um, and I think that everybody else, we're not going to something. We all, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be invested in this world. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to tell this story the way you're supposed to tell this story. Um, I think I've been privileged in not being able and not being, you know, caught up in those things. I mean, hence my desire to work in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. I love once you're in the cocoon of filmmaking or the cocoon of the process of making anything, it's just y'all. It's just y'all as, as humans, as artists, as vulnerable beings. And so I think that everybody's vulnerable. And, and so it's no pressure in that regard. But I, I feel the pressure of what the value of the work is today, mm-hmm. you know, and thinking about the story of the piano lesson and in the current political climate of folks not trying to hear our stories and not trying to tell the, and not listening to the truths or trying to, you know, marginalize us even more than we've already been marginalized, that puts a certain kind of weight on the value of, of, of what we say and what we share. So I feel that, but I, when I'm in the cocoon, the cocoon is like, Mm-mm, do this, yeah, do this intentionally, do this rigorously, do this lovingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with these people, whomever they may be. Mm-hmm. How are you imagining, you may not be a planner, I am not, but what are you imagining is <laughs> like your future career? And, you know, are there other disciplines you want to experiment with? Do you imagine returning to dance and in a more formal way? Like, what are some of the things you want to get into? Oh, wow. Yeah, I, you know, I hate getting hurt because I feel like I'm always ready. I want to always be ready to do anything. I want to always be open to expanding. And yes, to all those things. I want to dance every day at the end of the day. But my (laughs) body is like, excuse you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I want to do film in the weirdest way possible. I don't know if I can dance in a certain kind of way, but I'm willing to try with the formalness of, of the past. Who knows? I'm I'm willing to be tested. I'm willing to be tested. I To dance on the street, to do some weirdness like that. I, I remember doing something and it was just like literally a 15 minute performance of literally just walking down the street, two women wearing red shirts or something. And that was it. I'm here for that too. I'm here <laughs> for anything that's making us question what we see and how we are every day and what kind of people we are because you know we need these this questioning the world is in this mania state this state of mania and um, needs a bit slowing down so anything that is pulling back and and pulling the world back and driving me forward to to be renewed to be anew to be naked to mm-hmm. be shifted i'm here for it yeah. yeah what interests do you have outside of your artistic practice <laughs> I, i've been weightlifting and i i've thoroughly enjoyed that i love to brag on how much i can deadlift <laughs> i never 
expected it to be something that I could do, mm-hmm. let alone want to do every day or every other day because you got got to have your rest days. But I, I'm thoroughly enjoying that. It's it's super fun. I'm a nature walker too. That's just the thing. It's it's reviving. My acupuncturist talks about you need some vitamin D, and and not from the pill. She the, she would say the pill, but she says go sit by a tree. And that's what I would be doing. It, and it's it's walking amongst uh, forests and wooded areas is is a thing. And I dig it because it's quiet also. Yeah. And being with works that are part of things that so many people are a part of the universe and making, particularly filmmaking, is so many people on set together. It's, and there is hardly a time to find peace. I mean, you can sit in your trailer, but I like to sit with the people because <laughs> I'm with the people. Yeah. But when you're in the forest, it's a different kind of uh, beingness that's happening out of there. And now we're very clear that we know the trees are communicators. So maybe I'm trying to learn a new language. That's it. <laughs> hopefully, I'll, hopefully I'll understand it one day. But I, I dig those places of solitude. Yeah. Yeah. My last question is, how do you find refuge? Oh, yeah, it's there. It's the forest and a bonus is the river. Because mm-hmm. it's 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 the earth and it's the flow of the water. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That is it's I'm not a beach girl. I don't need, uh, I mean, we are Tarsus. We like Lux, right? <laughs> I definitely do. <laughs> we like luxury. <laughs> but if, if I could take it down to bare bones and simplicity, it's just, it's just the fire space, a river flowing. And I could just watch the birds fly and land on the, the surface of the water all day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish that for you as much as possible. Um, thank you thank so much, Daniel. This was so lovely. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's my great pleasure. To keep up with more of Danielle Deadweiler's work, you can follow her on Instagram at Danielle Deadweiler. This season of Many Lumens is brought to you by Open Society Foundations. It is produced by Black Star Projects in partnership with Row Home Productions. The host and executive producer of Many Lumens is me, Maori Carmel Holmes. This episode was produced by Kayla Lattimore. Associate producers are Irit Reinheimer and Zoe Greggs. Managing producer is Alex Lewis. Executive editor is John Myers. Our music supervisor is David Little Dave Adams. Our theme song was composed by Vijay Mohan and remixed by Little Dave. This episode features music by Columbia Knights. If you've liked what you've heard so far this season, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. Sending you light and see you next time. Mm